love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. We want to celebrate a friend and a brother, Prophet Randolph Nisha. Let's appreciate the man of God. Thank you. He, he was with us in the first service. He's also with us again in the second service. Thank you. I don't take this for granted at all. God bless you so much, man of God. Hallelujah. All right. So we want to continue with our teaching on the battle for purity. It's been an interesting journey, right? All right. And I hope you are learning a lot. The battle for purity. That's part four. I always love to repeat some things I say because repetition, I believe, is the key to understanding. I'm not rushing with you at all. We have explained a very important reality which I don't want any believer to lose sight of. We looked at something very important we call uh, number one, we call it the penalty of sin. We looked at the dominion of sin. Then we looked at the presence of sin. So it was a 3P reality. The penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Now we explained that through the fall, man was under the power of sin and sin dominated man's life. And because man was under the power of sin, he now began to sin. And because man began to sin, he had to pay for the penalty for his sin. So follow this. The power of sin in man produced the practice of sin. And the practice of sin ended man in judgment to face the penalty for his sin. And because man now was under the power of sin and man sinned, there was the presence of sin also in his members, which was at work in his life to work against God's purposes. So what Jesus did by the cross and by the shedding of his blood is that he included us in him when he died so that he will set us free from the power and dominion of sin. We saw that in Romans chapter 6. So when a man believes Jesus Christ, he is no longer under the power of sin. It's a reality you must know. If you don't know it, you cannot be able to recognize it and recon it as a reality working in your life. The reason why many people are still being dominated by sin is because they don't know that sin's power over their lives has been broken. Then in the shedding of the blood of Jesus... Jesus paid the price and the penalty for our sin. So the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the wage and gave us the gift of himself. So man is delivered from the power of sin and he is forgiven of the penalty for his sins. I've explained to you sin is first a power before it becomes a practice. You must be a sinner in order to sin. You don't sin to become a sinner. You sin because you are a sinner. It is the power of sin that produces the practice of sin. Are you following this thing carefully? So Jesus did not come for the cobwebs. He came for the spider itself first. He did not come for the, the fruits of the tree. He came for the tree itself. Which is the power of sin. And that was what he did when he included you in his death. 
So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Therefore, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we are crucified with Christ. It's a reality. If you want to deal with the power of sin, you've got to realize this. In Romans 6, we are told that he that is dead is free from sin. And because we are included in the death of Jesus, when he died, we died to sin. Before we met Christ, we were, we were dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2, the verse 1. Notice the difference. Before we met Jesus, we were dead in sin. What's that? And you, had he quickened, who were dead in in trespasses and sins. So we were dead in sin before we met Jesus. When we believed in Jesus, we are now dead to sin. There is a difference. To be dead in sin means sin is your reality. You are dominated by it. To be dead to sin means as long and as far as sin is concerned, you don't respond to it because you are dead. So sin has no dominion over your life. Listen, a wife is under the dominance of the husband as long as she is married to the husband. There are only two possible causes to leave the authority of your husband. Number one is death. Number two is divorce. And the good news is that Jesus did not help us to divorce sin. He actually helped us to die to sin so that we will be freed from its power. So, you've got to keep recognizing this reality that I am first of all dead to sin. Come on, shout it. I am dead to sin. Say it again. I am dead to sin. Listen, when someone is dead, there is a proof. When you kick the person, he does not respond. You pinch the person, he does not respond. If you want to truly know someone is dead, just take a cane. No matter how pretensive the person is, <laughs> he will wake up. If he was pretending to be dead, he will wake up. Like that person is truly dead, he will not respond. So when the Bible says we are dead to sin, it means we don't respond to it. Its power and dominion of our lives is broken. Praise God. And we are free from the penalty of sin. No wonder in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the verse 19, the Bible tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing to them their trespasses. So, in the New Testament, God does not impute our trespasses against us. You know why? Because it was imputed into Christ. So, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the verse 21, the Bible says, For God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus did not know sin. He was made sin. We did not know righteousness. We were made righteous. So we have become the very righteousness of in Christ Jesus because we are free from the power of sin and we have been forgiven our penalty for sin. But the challenge we have is that the first two realities has taken place already in Christ. But now, though you are free from the power of sin 
and you are forgiven of the penalty for sin, sin is still present in your members because of the fall. Sin today still opens up its ugly head through the power of the flesh. As long as you are in this human body, there is an element inside you called the flesh. It is the leftover files Adam left in you. It's in his body. And this flesh operates by lust. By passion. By inclinations. It operates by appetites. Are you following this thing carefully? So, um, because we are born again, the Holy Ghost has come to settle in our lives. And our body is his home. But because you have a new nature inside you and you have a new spirit abiding in you, there's going to be a conflict. When you were not born again, you went, there was nothing, there was nothing like struggle with sin. Because you were living in it. So listen carefully. No unbeliever struggles with sin. If you are here struggling with sin, it's because you are what? Born again. So there is a fight. There is a conflict. There is something in you that repulses and rejects the thing. That is how come it's not looking like a fight. But unfortunately, because you don't have what it takes to fight, you are always defeated. I'm, I'm teaching good here. So in First Peter chapter 2, the verse 11, the Bible tells us, brethren, as dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which does what? Which war against? So there is an inner war. That is what we are teaching on the battle for purity. A lot of times, people think that once Christ has finished the work for us and we are in Christ Jesus and set free from sin, that is all we sin. That's not true. It's half truth. In Romans chapter 7, the verse 23, we see another major reality that every believer must understand. This is the same Apostle Paul who in Romans 5 tells us how Christ freed us from the power of sin. From the penalty of sin. The same Paul in chapter 6 tells us we are free from the dominance of sin. Now in chapter 7, Paul is now relating to us that sin is not fully over just because you are in Christ. So he says, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. That is how come you don't think the thoughts you want to originally think about. You have battles with the mind to do things you know is not godly, but you find no strength in you. So he says, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is, where, where is the law of sin? In where? In your members. So sin still functions through our members. But we permit it by giving in to our lusts. Listen, in Romans chapter 8, Paul now goes further to tell us how to deal with the flesh. That one is not a finished work. Look, he says, Romans chapter 8, the verse 12. Paul is going to help us to deal with the flesh. He says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. What is scripture telling us? If I owe you money, you can demand money from me. If I owe you 6,000 Ghana cities, you can then come to my house and ask me for 6,000. Are you following this? If I owe you 10,000 Ghana cities, you have the right to enter my house and demand how much? 
10,000. But if I don't owe you, I'm staying peacefully watching my TV. And you enter my house and come and tell me, give me my 5,000. What do you do? Someone says, I'll slap you. Someone says, I'll arrest you. Someone says, I will insult you. Someone says, you'll see my true colors. Why? I don't owe you. You are bringing a case that does not exist. Now the Bible is telling us, brethren, we are not debtors to the flesh. It means we don't owe the flesh. So the flesh cannot tell us how we should live. Makuta pashanima. Ah. So the next time the flesh tells you, don't forgive, don't forgive. Keep the pain. What do you tell the flesh? What you just told me that you slap it. The next time the flesh tells you, you, you have to do this thing. You have to fulfill that lustful desire you are feeling. What do you tell the flesh? The same thing you are just telling me now. Why? Because you don't owe it. So, it cannot place a demand on what you should give to it. Mm. So, it says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. To live after the flesh. Because we don't owe the flesh, it does not tell us what to do. Listen, it is an unbeliever who lives by his flesh and is conducted by the flesh. Both the believer and the unbeliever have flesh. But the difference between us and the unbeliever is that number one, the unbeliever has no strength. Number two, he has no restraining force. Number three, he's helpless because he's a sinner. Number five, because he's in sin, he owes the flesh. So, we are not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. What are we supposed to do? The verse 13, look at that, look at that. He's giving us a solution. He says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. Aren't you realizing how your spiritual life keeps going downward, 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 the more you give into the flesh? Because when you live by the flesh, it will kill you spiritually. It will make you dried up as a believer. He says, but if through the Holy Spirit... You kill, that's the word mortify. You kill the deeds of the body. He says you shall live. So there is an assignment for believers. They are supposed to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to be able to kill. The word kill is not physical killing. There are times you find the word kill or die. It is not referring to all die be die. If you read intelligently in context, there are times the word death means to not operate. It means it's inoperative. Are you seeing that? So, he's saying that, but if through the spirit, we kill, we render the deeds of the body inoperative. He says we shall live. How do you deal with the flesh? First of all, through the spirit. That's like I'm, nobody has ever succeeded who said, I won't do it again. It's more than I won't do it again. It is by the spirit. Not by might. Not by power. But by my spirit. Listen, that is how come the Holy Spirit is called a helper. But the challenge is that in your Christian work, the Holy Spirit will not do 100% for you. He operates with you. That is why he's a helper. 
That means you must be doing something that he comes to assist. So if you're not reading your Bible, how does he remind you? Listen, if you know nothing, the Holy Spirit is called a, 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 what? a reminder. If you know nothing, he'll remind you of it. So, there are ways we engage the Holy Spirit. How? Through Bible study. Strong Bible study. Listening to the word of God. Your ears must always be hearing the word. When you are doing that, you are actually empowering the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you pray, you are getting more connection with God. In as much as we are one with Christ, in our experience, we can be from a distance. Prayer is what connects the believer to God. Prayerlessness serves your relationship. It serves your connection from God. Are you following this thing? So, these spiritual activities give the Holy Spirit the free flow to be able to operate in our lives so that he helps us to deal and kill sin in the members of our body. So, the battle for purity is that as long as you are remaining in this panoply called flesh, you are going to battle constantly. Why? Because there are two opposing forces. In Galatians chapter 5, the verse 17, Paul makes it more clearer in this. He says, for the flesh lasted. And when lasted can confuse a lot of people. Give that to me in NLT so they understand this. He says, for the flesh, NLT. The sinful nature wants to do evil. Which is just the opposite. I don't like the word sinful nature, but we can manage it. It's just the opposite of what? What the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires. So how does the Holy Spirit help us? By giving us desires. Oh, oh. He says these desires. Oh, amplified. Okay, let's manage it. He says for the desires of the flesh are what? Opposite. Opposed to the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the spirit are opposed to the flesh. Godless human nature. He says for these are antagon antagonistic to each other continually withstanding and in conflict with each other so that you are not free but are what? Prevented from doing what you desire to do. Haven't you realized this thing happening in your life? That things you want to do you are not able. Why? Because there is a conflict. So last week we began to look at a very important reality about restraining forces that keeps a believer from sinning. That means if a believer is responsive to the promptings of these restraining forces in him, that believer will gain ascendancy over every desire that is not from God. Last week I told you there are many believers who don't know what is called the flesh. I explained the flesh to you. And we said the flesh is the nature of living, thinking, and acting that is against the ways of God. That's the flesh. It is the part of you that rebels against God. It's the part of you that does not obey God's purposes. Listen, so if you are supposed to pray, you wake up at dawn to pray, and there is something telling you don't pray, sleep, that thing telling you that is called flesh. If you know you are supposed to walk in moral purity, and there is a strong desire telling you to do opposite of God's word. That thing that is inclining inside you is called what? It, that is flesh. Because it always opposes the ways of God. It is called flesh. 
So God has given us an armory, but we must know it intelligently. We said the first restraining force is number one, the new creator, the new creator spirit is the first restraining force. That should help you deal with your moral beauty. When you got born again, you became a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, there is a new nature inside you. And that nature is the nature of God. Remember, that nature you have inside you is holy. That nature is righteous. That nature, because it is like God, it wants to do God's will. So, the moment any other will begins to conflict that will in that new creature, there's going to be an opposing, uncomfortable discomfort. So, if you are truly born again, there will be some sorrow, some discomfort inside you anytime you are about to sin and anytime you are done sinning or anytime you are in the process of sinning. Am I teaching something good here? Now, how do I know that? I'm going to give you some scripture. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3, the verse 9. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Now watch. He says, whosoever is born of God. To be born of God means you are a child of God. You have God's nature. He says, whosoever is born of God, do it not what? Commit sin. Now, Another version can help us. Give us NLT to see if we, are, we will understand what it means. Do not commit sin. Look, look. He says, those who have been born into God's family, do not make a practice of what? Sinning. So, the moment sin becomes a constant practice in the believer's life, there is something wrong. He has ignored a certain nature inside him called the new creature. And you did it deliberately. Told you before you met Christ, you sin under dominance. You were under a slave. Sin tells you what to do and empowers you to do it. When you got born again, sin's power was broken. So now, today, the New Testament, sin is more of a choice than a power. So anytime a believer sins, it's more of a choice. He 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 knew what he was doing. How do I know? James chapter one, the verse thirteen is going to help us, so that the next time you are sinning, you don't say it's the work of the devil. Now, how do demons and the devil take over in reality like this? When you have constantly practiced a certain sin without repenting for a very long time, demons take over. Hear it carefully. So, the reason why sometimes people fall into sins like masturbation and it becomes very difficult to come out at the end of the day is simply because they did it over time and soon a demon took over it. If you are envious of people over time, demons responsible for envy will take over. That is where it becomes difficult. Please follow. In the New Testament, the believer cannot be possessed. Why? Because when he gets born again, the Holy Ghost takes his body as his home. And your home is actually one bedroom. So he can't share it with demons. So no demon can dwell in your spirit. follow this but you see demons can influence you as a believer and demons can afflict you in your body 
Follow. They can possess you, but they can what? Influence you and what? Afflict you in your body. This is a very important thing. That's why come there are some sicknesses. They go to the hospital. People, people don't. The doctors can't even understand. A demon is dwelling in that place. So Jesus dealing with someone who is deaf and dumb. He says, "I rebuke you, spirit of dampness." That means there's a spirit that did that to the body. Please, are you following this? So when a practice of sin is done for a very long time, demons take over. At that time, it is difficult for me to preach to get you out. Because a spirit is in charge. That's how come when you have a chance like this, you don't take it for granted. So, he says, let no man say when he's tempted. The next time you are tempted, don't say this. I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted he any man. Next verse. How is a man tempted? He says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of what? His own lust and is enticed. So you hear people say it's the work of the devil. No, it, it was your work first. Then the devil saw that you were interested in what he has offered. He said, since you are interested, yen for door embo Then you enter into a partnership. Uh, see, you see, I am explaining certain things that you may not hear. A man is tempted when he's drawn away, away by what? His own lust. Bro, nobody put that pornography on the, on the, on the phone for you. Uh, have you ever imagined you, you, your own pictures, all of a sudden pornography appeared on it like that? It doesn't happen that way. <laughs> now, is there anybody here who woke up from a man's room and said, Who removed my pants? <laughs> Where am I? Ah. Uh, is there anybody like that? <laughs> On your way going, the Holy Spirit was reminding you in my teaching. Prophet Lab, you are seeing my images in your mind like that. It was playing. It was on play. Then he said, Holy Ghost. You paused the video in your, in your brains. And as you were going, the Holy Ghost brought more of my teaching. He was bringing it. The scriptures I quoted, the thing was hitting you. Then you were like, (laughs) (laughs) You became rock of ages at that time. And surprisingly, when it's over, then you're like, what did I just... Then he said, it is the work of the devil. Look at your head. <laughs> I'm teaching you serious, serious stuff. He says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and he's enticed. If you call me at dawn, he says, Danny, I'm done it. I don't know what. Hey, fear! <laughs> I'm 
don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. No, let's first settle it. You knew what happened because that's the only way I can help you. <laughs> that's the only way I can help you. If you tell me you don't know what happened, you are trying to escape the truth of scripture. A man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and his entice. That's why I tell you, Job said he has made a covenant with his eyes not to behold a woman lustfully. So I told you, if you see a very enticing lady once, it was a mistake. If you see it twice, it was deliberate. So you just watch once and turn. It will be difficult. You'll be like, then you move. Forward we go. It will save you. You speak in tongues. The further you go. Uh, now, you think that me, the one teacher, I don't do that. Or you think I'm a spirit being, right? We fight the same battle. Man, I'm lying. We fight the same battles every single morning after evening. My brother is confirming. Hey! Ha! I said, something, the things you don't want to see, the things are saying, see, see. <laughs> you don't get this thing. I, I know, I know. It's not easy. We have to battle. And then you look at the thing and like, mm. you move. Because your ministry is at stake. Souls are at stake. We look at it. Integrity is at stake. Because when you spoil your name, you spoil God's name. And that's what many people don't know. If a bad name comes from you because you are representing God, that name goes to God. And sometimes we look at these things and we say, no, we won't give God the bad name. Praise God. So sometimes we deliberately put certain hedges around that. It's not because we are strict. I don't reply ladies' messages at a certain time. No, except it's emergency. You can only call me after 10 o'clock, except it's life and death. If it's life and death, you can call me. But if it's about relationship problem, don't call me. We'll talk in the morning. There are things I do to protect myself because if I'm trying to mourn with you day one, day two, day three, now we'll be, we'll be establishing an emotional bond. And it can be a problem. If you're talking to me, don't be calling me dear. I'm not your I'm your pastor. No, you see, so some people don't know that if you entertain these things, it becomes something else. Listen, what you don't control now will become something else. If, uh, if you remember he tell me you miss me, I'll just let you know, hey, you can't miss me. There's only one person that can miss me. <laughs> so please, I'm begging you, don't miss me. If you want to tell me you miss me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> miss my teachings. <laughs> Listen. If you want to tell me you miss me, say it publicly. That one I know is real. I can tell ladies in this church that I miss them. I say it when everybody's here. So in front of other people, I say, oh, I miss you. It's been a long time. Yes. I want you to know it's a new missing. If I want to say a lady is beautiful, I say it publicly when others are around. You are, you are looking so pretty. You see, people who do that privately, you're looking nice. 
agenda agenda what you can't say publicly we suspect you we suspect you say it publicly but every man no no come come to the verse 14 he says but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his what own last and his what entice so your own last entices you next verse when last has what conceived so you are the one conceiving the last he says it brings forth what sin so remember sin does not happen out of the blues there is a process sin always begins first with last when you entertain the last that last conceives nobody committed adultery by mistake like I'm telling you nobody fornicated by mistake no nobody stole company money by mistake there was something that first went on in their mind that was conceived as last inside so he says when last is conceived he bringeth forth sin so before sin comes it has gone through a process so that you will not have an excuse to say it was the work of the devil. And when sin is finished, the Bible is telling you something. When sin has finished, it brings forth death. I told you last week, treat sin like a scorpion or a serpent. There are two things you do to a serpent. You flee it or you kill it. We don't kiss serpents. We don't, we don't, we don't play with serpents. Listen, if Jesus came to die for sin, that means sin is not funny. Are you following what I'm saying? If it's because of sin, look, it is because of sin Jesus was looking ugly on the cross. He was wounded for what? Not for our beauty. So every ugly experience Jesus went through on the cross, it was because of sin. So sin can never still, even after the cross, be a funny thing. It is for sin he died. It is for righteousness he lives. It is for sin we die with him. It is for righteousness we are living with him. It's that simple. No, am I helping somebody here? So, he's saying when it is finished, it brings him for death. That's what has destroyed many people today. So, the new creation nature itself is a restrainer. Number two, we said the Holy Spirit is the next restraining force in the believer. The Holy Ghost uses promptings. He uses discomforts. He uses stirrings. He uses beddings. He uses inclinations. Sometimes he even uses holy panics to prevent us from sinning. That's how come anytime you are about to sin or when you are sinning or after you are done sinning, there is something in you you can't explain. I'm explaining to you, it's called the Holy Spirit. You feel miserable, you feel uncomfortable. That's not yet condemnation. Understand condemnation is that kind of feeling that makes you feel you are unworthy before God and God is going to punish you in hell. That's condemnation. But there's something also called godly sorrow. It is the act of feeling ashamed of something you did before God with grief God. You are grieving because that thing has grieved God. That's, we call that remorse. Feeling ashamed because you have brought shame to the name of Jesus. It's New Testamental. God puts that in us for a purpose. I explained that an alarm does not deal with the armed robber, 
but it gives you an information of the armed robber. A fire alarm or a smoke detector does not quench the fire. It gives you a signal that there is fire so that you quench it. The Holy Ghost will give you promptings and signals. But listen, he's not the one that's going to do it. You have to do it together with him. Now as I come, the Holy Ghost can watch you do all kinds of miserable things before God. He'll watch you. He can't say anything. You know why? Because he cannot do anything that you don't involve or invite him. In the New Testament, God does not force himself on you. Whatever we do for God and because of God is always willing. The Bible says you were bought at a price. That word bought is actually a description of a slave market. You were under the slavery of sin. Jesus came to the slave market and bought you not with money but with himself, his blood. There's an account in the early 18s of one slave that was being sold for sale. And two slave masters were coming to buy. They were bargaining by auction. And the slave knew how wicked these two slave masters were. Wicked, so she knew that they would sleep with her. They would abuse her. They would beat her. So she was scared because whoever wins, she's in trouble. And she was sad. When one won the bidding, all of a sudden, a man, a businessman from nowhere, very wealthy, he came and quoted a price that was that, that the other price they quoted was in no match. And he bought that slave. When he bought the slave, she was in chains and commanded one of his servants to cut off the chains. And the chains were cut off. Hmm. Then the man looked at her and said, They bought you to enslave you. I bought you to free you. You can go. And the slave turned her back. While she was going, she was not thinking. I didn't have a life. Where am I going to begin from? I don't have a family. This is a man. He didn't buy me to enslave me. He bought me to free me. Where do I have to go? After some steps, she turned and ran to the man. He says, you bought my freedom. I give you my freedom. And she knelt. He says, I'll serve you forever. Willingly. She had the chance to go free. But to her, going free without the man that set her free was actually bondage. Because she can't fend herself. She doesn't have a family. So the man that set me free, I will serve him forever. Do you know this is what God expects from us? You were in a slave market. Jesus came to purchase you. And he broke the chains off. And he says, you are free to go. I don't, I don't demand anything from you. Go. Now, what you must do as a slave that has been set free is that you must be reasonable. That's how come today offering our body is called a reasonable act of worship. So you must be reasonable. He saved me. I have nowhere to go. Now my life is given to him to offer my body to his service. And guess what? It must be willing. When you are fleeing sin, it must be willing. If anybody here is saying, I won't sin because I'm afraid of hell, you don't understand the gospel. We don't stop sinning because of fear of hell. We stop sinning because of fear of God and awe and reverence for God. It's not hell. It's not the devil. It's God, the one that set us free. 
And this is a conviction that should be in the heart of every believer. We do it by willingness and not by compulsion. That's why in the New Testament, everything we do is willing. Giving is willing. He says, let God loves a cheerful giver. He says, let us not do it with grudge. Not by compulsion, but willingly. We serve him willingly. We stop sinning willingly. So today, if you are stopping a habit, it's because you willingly love the Lord. He will never force you. If you want help, he will. Am I helping you? So the Holy Spirit is the next restraining force. Number three is the word of God. The word of God is the next restraining force in our lives. Anytime a scripture is quoted to you or you come across a verse that speaks to your soul, it's stored, it is stored in your mind. And I told you there's a difference between your mind and your brain. Your brain functions on your head. Your mind functions in your spirit. So your mind is, a, is an organ that works with your spirit. Your brain is an organ that works with your head. Follow. So, when a scripture renews your mind, it is a reality that has registered in your spirit. So, when in the day of evil, the Holy Ghost takes that scripture to restrain you. So, the more scripture you have, the more heavier the restraining force will be. The Holy Ghost will be pumping you with those scriptures. So, if you have an issue with your wife, you want to revenge, the Holy Ghost take the scripture. Husbands, love your wives. You remember what is love? Love is not peg. Love is not flowers. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not keep record of wrongs. Stand to it. And the Holy Ghost begins to bring it up. That revelation he prompted on you now becomes a restraining force. If you ignore it over time, like I'm telling you, you never hear it again. And that is a danger many believers are falling into. There are many people who today have become free-range believers. You know why? Because the Holy Ghost has used all these restraining forces to keep you from doing what is wrong before God. And you keep ignoring them. Now guess what? In Romans 1, God gives you over to your evil. He will now allow you to do it to fulfill and seal up your evil. He will give you over to your iniquity. Number four, the conscience. We spoke about it. It is the next restraining force. We said your conscience is the voice of your spirit. It is the part of you that justifies or condemns you. In Romans chapter 2, we saw that your conscience is the part of you that either accuses or excuses you. We saw that. And we said there are some facts about the conscience every believer must know. Number one, we, you can have a good or bad conscience. Number two, your conscience can be exercised. You can go and listen to last week's message. Number three, your conscience is a witness bearer. Number four, your conscience can either be weak or strong. Number five, your conscience can be pure. Number six, your conscience can be seared or deadened. Number six, your conscience can be defiled. Today's teaching. Number six. Sorry, number five. The next restraining force is ministry gifts. They are the next restraining force that guides a believer 
to walk in moral purity. It restrains you. What are ministry gifts? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the Bible gives it to us. So not only is your recreated spirit, the Holy Spirit, your conscience and the word of God are restraining force. Ministry gifts. He gives some apostles, some pastors, some evangelists, some pastors, and what? Teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Now, ministry gifts in your life are gifts God gave to you to help you in restraining. Right now, I'm a gift to you as a pastor, and my teaching is helping you to restrain. So when I teach you and you have plans of revenge, that teaching begins to restrain you from doing what you wanted to do. So I have become a gift of restraint in your life. Are you following that? A prophet by prophecy can say that somebody has offended you and you want to take revenge. The Lord is saying, don't do it. You see how beautiful this gift is? He's saying, don't do it. The prophet's ministry has become a restraining force. There's a relationship you are in that is going to destroy your life. Be very careful about it. If not, it's going to destroy you. Be careful. That prophet's word has become what? A restraining force that has guided you so that you will not have an excuse. Are you following this? So ministry gifts are restraining forces. When you ignore for a long time, God will give you over. Number six, let's do it quickly. Other believers. Other believers are restraining forces. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, the verse 21, the Bible says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Other believers are restraining forces. When you have other believing friends around you, Christian brothers and sisters who are spiritual, they can serve as a force. Let's say, let's say you stay with another Christian. You are two or three in a room. And you fell into a serious temptation. You, you don't know. The thing is worrying you. But then you just felt like sharing with that believer. Do you know just by sharing with him can lift up something from you? Actually, temptation, temptation is, is really affecting me. I don't know why. I'm seeing a spiritual believer. Okay. Sometimes you want to do something evil. Some temptation has just crept in. Then early in the morning you wanted to fulfill it and then you heard one of your believing brothers playing Pastor Chris's message. That morning, that brother helped you to restrain. Or you heard him praying in tongues. Then something was stirring up within you. That believer has become a restraining force. Or you wanted to take a decision, you, you open up to another Christian to, to help you. The advice that believer gives you now becomes a restraining force. It's good to have spiritual brothers around. I am telling you because we are not islands. We can never live the Christian life alone. I fear a man who is self-made. I fear a man whose success nobody contributed to it. I fear a man who said he only reads the Bible. I fear that man. We are not self-made. There are so many things God uses to build us up. He can use your ministry friends to help you. I am telling you. 
Sometimes I listen to my own teachings of my friends and people I respect a lot. When I listen to it, I get a new perspective of my message. It helps me. Do you know that when you cook your own food and you're eating your own food, sometimes you don't, you don't enjoy it? Yes, that's what happens to us as pastors. Because we cook the food. So sometimes we are not really blessed by our own teaching. So it is good we also have to sit under people so that their food can bless us. I, I, I you can see it. So it's very important. Very, very important. So other believers are very critical in your life. James tells us, he says, confess your faults before one another. That's a serious matter. There are some things you are battling. You have to tell another believer. Spiritual believer. I'm always emphasizing because there are many carnal believers around. For you realize your mother has gone to Jamaica. Hallelujah. Number eight. Sorry, number seven. Unbelievers. I know you are shocked. Unbelievers are restraining force. Unbelievers are what? So believers are restraining force. God has also given you unbelievers. There are sometimes you want to do something, but for the sake of an unbeliever believing the gospel, you won't do it. <laughs> Is it clear? Do you know that you are the righteousness of God in Christ? Do you know? But do you know the unbeliever doesn't know that? He is not spiritual to understand that the word righteousness of God. So the only thing the unbeliever can see about you is your righteous living. You didn't hear what I said. The, believer does not know, the unbeliever does not know you are holy. He does not even understand the concept of holiness by faith. Righteousness by faith. He does not know it. The only evidence that makes him know that there is a God is your actions. Are you following this thing? It is your actions that tells them that this, this person, he's behaving like God. That means he's a Christian. Can't you see sometimes you do some things and people ask you, are you a Christian? Are you like that? You can, let's say, you are in a, a, a big car and people are sitting, you give an old lady a, a, your seat to come and sit down. He will first ask you, what church do you go to? So your life is, see, I've told you there are two Bibles. One is with you and one is you. Your life is preaching something every single day. You'll be shocked. You have been coming to that area for that evil. Somebody is watching you. You have no idea. Recently, somebody wrote something on Facebook. It was like, when he see my ministry now, he said he's not surprised. He said many, many years ago, he said, he says, years ago, I saw this man one time on campus. He was walking alone, speaking in tongues, blowing in tongues, blowing in tongues. He was like, who is this? So when he saw me today, he says, I'm not surprised. Oh, so somebody was watching me, I didn't know. You may think that what you have done, nobody saw it. You'll be shocked. People are watching you in the area, but everybody's behaving that you don't know. They're watching. Do you know, do you know, listen carefully, if your actions... Eh? are sinful. And unbelievers who see you a Christian living that life, do you know what happens to, to them? Their sinfulness is hardened. 
they are hardened in their sinfulness. It becomes more difficult to win them for Christ. So that compound house that you have been bringing three women every week and they see you doing morning devotion and singing early morning in the room. There are two unbelievers there and they are saying, this guy is always speaking in tongues yet he is tonguing other people there. So at that particular time, your life to the unbeliever now is that this is how Christians behave. If that person wants to go to church because of you, he will never go to church. You'll be shocked. Haven't you heard people say that? You call your, this guy's a believer, they won't go to church again. You've not heard that. And you'll be shocked when we get to heaven. Jesus will ask you for their soul. Because your actions are preaching every single day. My goodness. Your actions are preaching. Never be the reason why an unbeliever decided never to receive Christ. Never. So, unbelievers must be a restraining force. That I can't do this because if the unbeliever gets to know about this, ah, it will bring shame. It will bring shame to the name of God and harden their sinfulness. So, the fact of the existence of, of the existence of unbelievers should be the reason why. Elom's sister Mimi became a member of this church because when Elom had an accident, Pastor Ben spent all his money used all his fuel, visited Elom, stayed with Elom, not even with the family members. Pastor Ben stayed there in the same place. He missed her service to go and take care of her. And the sister came. He said, hey, Pastor, you did this. I'll come to your church. That's how come we had Mimi in this church. Nobody preached to her. Nobody preached to her. Number eight, the fear of God. It's a restraining force. The fear of God in a man's life is a restraining force. What is the fear of God? The fear of God is not running away from God. Because the Bible says perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That means holiness can never be perfected without the fear of God. The fear of God is an ingredient in the believer's life. Whereby that believer reverences respects and honors God to the extent that he begins to love what God loves and hates what God hates. So the fear of God is an extreme reverence for God. It's a certain honor that you give to God. And you'll be shocked that the Bible tells us about the spiritual qualities Jesus was going to express as a man in Isaiah chapter 11. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the verse, from the verse 3. And shall make him quick of understanding in the fear of the Lord. Mm. So even Jesus had the fear of God. This is a serious matter here. Jesus had the fear of God. That's how come Jesus under the Father. The fear of God in the believer is a restraining force. Sometimes you may not know many scriptures to deal with certain issues in your life. But the fear of God alone, because I respect God and I know this is not right, I won't do it. See, Joseph did not have the Holy Spirit. Are you listening to me? Joseph did not have a new creation spirit. Joseph did not have a conscience that has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Joseph did not have a Bible. 
But I'm telling you, Joseph has done so well, more than many believers who have all these things I just mentioned. He had a chance to commit a sin before God and nobody's watching. That's, what, that's the lie many of you have been telling yourself. That nobody saw me, so I escaped. No, 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 no. It's a lie. You, your moral strength has been sapped, so you don't understand the things of the holy. You are dealing with a God who does not live in time and you said no one saw me. Have you forgotten in, in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, we are surrounded with a cloud of witnesses. So not only God is seeing you, Abraham is watching you. Isaac is watching you. Your father who is in heaven is watching you. Your mother who is in heaven is watching you. So you are not alone. There are people watching you. Some of you, whilst you're about to do this thing, then they're all watching. You say, don't do, don't do. Abraham is saying, don't do, don't do. Your auntie said, don't do, don't do. Then it's like, they're giving you fast like that. Don't, then you go and do this. They're like, hey, let's go. And they go and watch another believer. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witness. They are witnesses. A witness someone who has, who has seen. So they are watching us. The fear of God. He says, how can I do such great wickedness and sin before God? Was God standing there? He had reverence for God. And let me tell you something. If you have the fear of God in you, then you see, there are rewards for, fear, for fearing God. God honors people who fear him. Go and read the, the Old Testament. You're going to see in the book of Psalms. The angel of the Lord encamped around them that fear the Lord. So there is protection for those who fear God. In the New Testament, you see the fear of God close to ten times. So, the, the concept of the fear of God is something many believers don't understand. Most of our mothers and our fathers, they didn't have the kind of revelation we are having today. But I can tell you the quality of their life can never be compared to ours who have all the revelation in the world. We know every scripture on prayer, yet we won't pray. Our mother only knew one scripture and that scripture, she has lived the past 50 years on it. She has been praying every morning. The fear of God I won't do it because I fear God. That is a restraining force. I will not do this thing. I fear God. There are many Christians who don't fear God. I'm telling you, they don't fear God. There are some things as a Christian, eh? Just for the fear of God. I fear God to dishonor his name. I respect God. I revere him. I won't do it. Hmm. God. I fear God. These are things I didn't understand some years ago. I fear God. Why was it that Apostle Paul was tempted in a sense that people wanted to worship him? Do you know that he tore his clothes because he felt he did not deserve it? Do you know what made him do that? Apostle Paul could have said that we are gods according to scripture. So just bow, let me just do some laying of hands for you. He tore his clothes, lying down prostrate. He said, we are men like one of you. That's the fear of God. So that fear he had for God did not make him take God's glory. 
And fear of God can be expressed in different dimensions. If you fear God, you will not steal company money. I am telling you. If you fear God, you will not touch church money. No. If you fear God, eh, there are some things that you, you, oh my goodness. I fear him. I fear him. Extreme reverence for him. It will destroy something in your life. Just the fact of you fearing God. My goodness. Quickly, let's do this in five minutes and close. What happens when we live in sin? Or what happens when we do not walk in moral purity? Listen, we need to understand something about sin. And the reason why I'm boldly preaching about sin is because Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace, talk about sin. But you see, we don't talk about sin the way people talk about sin. Like today, when I began my teaching, I began to explain to you the penalty for, of sin, the, what, the power of sin, the presence of sin. People will not explain it that way. But that's how we are supposed to talk about sin. We talk about it how the New Testament spoke about it. Do you know there's a scripture that tells us don't company with anybody who is called a brother, who is covetous, who is a fornicator, who is a drunkard. Let me show you, show you that scripture. First Corinthians chapter 5, give me the last verse. No, the last two verses. The verse 12. Look, please see that for yourself. So that if, no, the verse 11. So that if you are a believer and you think just because the Bible is saying we should love one another, you love everything. Listen, there is something called tough love. I'm telling you. Jesus says, them that I love, I rebuke. That means there's even rebuke, which is an act of love. So love is not all that smiling thing. Nipani Jimmy is like, I still love you, you know. No. God's love loves you the way you are, but his love does not leave you the way you are. Listen carefully. He says, but now I've written to you not to keep company. This is the Paul that preached grace to us. Not to keep what? Company. If any man that is called a brother, so that in case you think he's an unbeliever. He says, be a what? A fornicator. One who has programmed his fornication strategy. Who has said, I've come to a church, I've seen some two girls there, I want to pick, I want to fire them before end of year service. <laughs> and he was having that conversation with you. And you are still calling him a brother. That guy is not a brother. I'll tell you who he is in the next two verses. He says, but now I've written to you not to keep company. If any man called a brother, be a fornicator. Or what? Covetous. He wants everything. Covetous believer. Be careful about covetous believers. Because very soon, if you're around them, what is going to happen to you is that you will never be content with anything that you have. He says, or oh, and what? Idolater. Obeviasism. Somebody who does, not, who does not make God his first priority. In the New Testament, idol worship is not going to a shrine. Anything that takes the place of God in your heart is an idol. Then he says, Arela, give me an NLT. So they understand this. Arela, they don't understand. 
He says, I meant that you are not to associate with. Listen, there is a way you can draw a line with someone in a very nice, loving way, which has not got to do with anger or hatred. I've done it a lot of times. He says, I meant that you are not to associate with anybody who what? Claims to be a believer, yet indulges in what? Sexual sin. Or is greedy. Or worships idols. Or is abusive. Or is a drunkard. All your friends, Friday night. Let's go. Or what? Cheats people. Cheats people. Don't even what? Eat with such people. Who are the such people? Brethren in Christ. He says, don't even eat with them. You know why? Because sin is contagious. If I have Qatar, you are around me, you get Qatar. Sin is also contagious. If you are around these people for a long time, it's a spirit, it will catch you. You start thinking it. You start imagining. You start doing it. Sin is contagious. So Paul is warning every believer. In fact, look at the name given to that person. That person is not even called a brother. I'll show you the next two verses. The verse 13. He says, look, give that to me in KJV. So they, are, they know the name given to that person. That Christian, no. That Christian. He says, but them that are without, God judge it. Therefore, put away from you among yourself. That what? That wicked person. Hey! So they are wicked believers. You see, these are hard truths that's in the Bible. And I will never water down the gospel for you. That wicked person, he says, put him away from my life. I'm teaching good So, in the New Testament, what does the act of sinning mean to God? Because many people feel that sin does not mean anything to God because we are forgiven. It's a lie. It's not true. Listen to this carefully. To think sin does not mean anything to God, it's not true. Look, sin is number one, an act of service. <laughs> I'll shock you. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Look at, look at it. Look at it. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? What? A living sacrifice. What? Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, what? Service. Now, check the word service in NLT. You're going to understand what that service means. He says, this is truly the way to what? To what? So, what you do with your body can be an act of what? Worship. Do you know when you sing with your body, you are, act, you are actually serving with your body? You don't know that. So, every act of service, if it is sinful, it was not God you offered it to. So, every act of sin is an act of what? It's a service. If you give your mouth, your lips to lie, you give your body for immoral acts, you are using that body for service and that service becomes your worship. That, but that worship is not to God. Hey! So, how many, how many gods have you been worshipping so far? 
It is an act of worship. So don't think it was just a lie. There was nothing like just a lie. Every act of sin is an act of service, an act of service, an act of what? Worship. Because that's what you're doing with your body. So you are rendering and offering worship. Number two, sin robs God his glory. It robs God his glory. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, do you not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Next verse. Quickly, quickly. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, do what? Do what? Glorify God in your what? You know, people say it's, it's, about, it's only about your position in Christ. He says your body can glorify God. So, act of sin is what? It robs God of what? His glory. God is robbed by your selfish actions of his glory. Number three, quickly. Sin is an insult against God's holiness. Now, what is holiness? Holiness simply means separated. Number two, holiness means uncommon. If something is uncommon, that thing has been separated. So now, in the Old Testament, bowls were made holy. Utensils were made holy. Spoons were made holy. How? That means holiness is not first of all doing what is holy. No. We have holiness and holy living. Holiness itself is a consecration. When a spoon is separated for God's purpose, that spoon becomes holy. I'll give an example. Do you know in a bank... Their computer system has been programmed for only banking services. Are you following this thing? So, the computer in the bank, let's say UMB Bank or Car Bank, the computer system has been designed for only what? Banking services. You don't use it for any other thing except banking. That computer is holy. It has been separated for a certain specific purpose. Are you following this thing? So when something is separated amongst the common, that thing becomes uncommon and that uncommonness is called holy. God is holy because he is uncommon. He is unique amongst all men. So, if the Bible says be ye holy, even as I am holy, God is saying I am separated, I am uncommon and I am unique. So when he says be ye holy, he says you also be uncommon. Be unique. Everybody is fornicating. I won't because God's word says so. You are living in holiness. Because you are expressing that uncommonness by your walk. I'm teaching good here. So, sin is an insult to God's holiness. Because you are acting common. Every act of sin is, a, is acting common. You are being common. Because commonness is something attributed to men. We know what men can do. We know what men can do. So when you join in doing that, you are proving the commonness of man. You are also common. But when you are separated, you become uncommon. And that uncommonness is the act of holiness. Are you following this thing? Quickly, number four. 
Sin undermines the grace of God. Sin undermines the grace of God. These are deep teachings that will bless your life. So you've got to listen to it. Sin, that's what, it undermines the grace of God. I've shared with you in Titus chapter 2, the verse 11. He says, the grace of God that brings what? Salvation has appeared to all men. Comma. It tells us in the next verse, teaching us that. Mm. So we see two things here. First of all, the first work of grace is to produce what? Salvation. Then the next verse tells us the second work of grace, which is what? Transformation. So the first work of grace is salvation. The second work of grace is what? Transformation. Surprisingly, he didn't say teaching the world. The grace of God is revealed to the whole world to produce salvation. But when it came to godly living and transformation, he says it teaches us Christians. So God is not concerned about the actions of the unbeliever. He is concerned about his salvation. When you become a believer, God is no more concerned about your salvation because you are saved. He is now concerned about your what? Your actions. I'm teaching good. So sin what? Undermines the grace of God. How do I mean? You give a bad name to grace. You make grace look incompetent when you live a life of sin. You are saying grace is not competent enough to transform your life. That's what you are saying when you live in sin. You undermine it. You make grace look cheap. Yet it was appropriated at a, at a cost and at a price. I'm helping someone. Finally, number five. Sin rejects the life of divine ownership. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the verse 19, check that here. He says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God? And you are what? Not your own, meaning your body does not belong to you. So, when you use your body for sinful practices, what are you doing? You are rejecting the life of divine ownership. You are saying you own yourself. Around my life. That's what you are doing. Is this in sinking? Right, so, next week we are going to look at Reasons for maintaining moral purity. Am I helping many of you here? All right, lift your voice and begin to pray. No matter how heavy this teaching is, if your heart is not open to the Holy Spirit, He can't help you. I said in the first service, that the only way the Holy Spirit can help us is when we ask Him. Grace is always made available in our weaknesses. When you display your weakness before God, that is when He's able to help you. Lord, I want you to help me to live a life that glorifies your name. Lift your voice and pray.
to your salvation. With you give expression to your faith. For faith without works is dead. With Any faith that doesn't have a corresponding obedience is weak and important. Surrender into the feet of Jesus now. Lord, I cannot do it by my strength. I surrender it to you. Help me to forgive that man. To forgive that woman, help me to maintain moral purity, to maintain purity in my words, purity in my thoughts, purity in my heart, purity in my conduct, purity in my sight. With hope in nothing, with hope in nothing, you surrender with hope in nothing, you surrender it all. With I surrender bitterness. I surrender forgiveness. I surrender masturbation. I surrender fornication. I surrender it. Envy. I surrender it. I surrender. I surrender. Fear and worry. I surrender. Everything I can surrender to you. I surrender. I surrender all to you. Everything I give to you. We're holding nothing. We're holding. Nothing. We're holding nothing. 